0: I'd like to just deal with two irreversible uh, dynamics uh, that uh, we've got to grapple with and um, I I hope we will grapple with them forever because in some ways there's a responsibility of another generation that's coming behind us and I am afraid of uh, uh, truncating the process without discipling them and making them aware of some of these issues whatever age they might be. And so we may not feel that we have to deal with a variety of prominent issues uh, because of numbers of reasons. But I assure you that uh, the generation, the responsibilities that we have to that other generation that's following, uh, I think we are uh, called upon to prepare a way uh, both theologically and then uh, missiologically as well. The two uh, major trends is going to be, as you know, the matters of urbanization. Um, again, uh, if we looked at a couple of overheads very quickly, and Jim knows that uh, we're going to get overheads in this uh, session, you will, uh, again, uh, just take a quick gander, and this has changed uh, quite a bit, but um, just to show at least that the uh, the, the process of urbanization is, is taking place, and... Um, uh, whether, again, we agree with it or not, or whether we like it or not, coming uh, out of um, uh, New Mexico, a lovely place. Um, I'm sure that that's also beginning to change as well, but not as drastically possibly. But here again, we see the changes of urbanization. Uh, we are close to six billion, six billion people, and uh, I think we're ahead of ourselves as, matter, as, as uh, matters of uh, urbanization. Uh, this is something as evangelical Christians that we're going to have to wrestle with as far as our mission outlook, as far as our church planting endeavors, as far as our concerns for people. But with this analysis comes also uh, the matter of globalization, uh, global villages that are, being, um, that are coming to our doorsteps. And um, if we looked at uh, immigration, uh, and during this period, prior to a major shift in immigration policy, we would, uh, we would look and see where uh, uh, the dominant uh, uh, power is going to be. And uh, again, Europe, uh, East and West Europe is beginning to, to show forth in the map during this 18, uh, the uh, early, later part of the 19th century. Um, but the shift in, uh, in immigration makes also a shift in uh, to the southern hemisphere, and so we have uh, again this uh, paradigm shift uh, that leads us now into a growing aspect of Latin, from Latin America and Asia primarily. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, this is something that we have to uh, pay heed to. Uh, here again, in the United States, we're facing this this. Um, uh, New Ellis Island, that's coming out of various cities in the United States. And um, what are we going to do about uh, the calling that God has given to us to preach the gospel? Um, 1.4 million people are coming into this country or somewhere in that vicinity. 1.1 to 1.4 million people are coming every year, uh, primarily from the Southern Hemisphere. Um, <clears throat> how are we going to do mission uh, in a uh, pluralistic society without compromising the gospel? Well, here we have this process of globalization, um, and uh, I would say that this is at the hand of the Sovereign Lord. So, how do we, uh, how do we share in this engagement of uh, new peoples that are coming to this country? If you recall, 1985 and 1990, there was a number of articles that came in Time magazine. The 1985 said, uh, how are we going to handle when the third world overwhelms the first world? Uh, what will the US be like when white America is not the majority? 1990, same uh, Time magazine. Uh, here, there are some signs that are given, but I'm afraid that in some ways the church wrestles very lightly with the subject of urbanization and global issues that are taking place on a variety of levels. And so. Um, my concern today is, is looking at some of that. If we could look, and I was just recently preaching in Chinatown, and I can remember I used to run an after-hour place uh, in Little Italy. And, uh, and so I went down, and I always knew that you could never move the Italian community, but it did change. And uh, the Chinese community has now taken over Tom, Thomas Street and a few other areas. And uh, 29 providences of China are found in Chinatown. Uh, how are we going to do ministry there without having to move to Flushing? Uh, questions. Uh, how do we bridge together so that Redeemer and the churches that are in Chinatown uh, bridge together solidly? Rather than losing people, they're gaining people. Uh, maybe from Redeemer rather than, Redeemer, uh, than the Chinese churches losing them to Redeemer. Uh, how do we deal with those prominent uh, young emerging leaders that are coming uh, from our campuses? So questions that we've got to answer. Uh, the other part of this matter, not only are we getting the immigration flow and I'll come back to some of this, uh, but as a survey, as an introduction, we're also realizing that we're reaching uh, deeply into the multitude of religions that are coming into this country. Uh, New York City, of course, is going to be the hub of, uh, of uh, worshiping Allah uh, in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, in Philadelphia, again, a prominent uh, throughout Philadelphia. So that probably I will say that I will be touched or at least uh, conf- confronted by either a Jehovah Witness or a Muslim. Uh, In the 10 years I've been here or close to it, I've never been approached or even talked to by a Christian uh, that just inquired maybe or just wanted to know who I was. But I have been, to be sure, I have been reached by Muslims and by Jehovah Witnesses. A question that just they're very committed to what they're doing, if that's all you want to say about it. Uh, very seriously committed. So here again you have 400 mosques in London or something of that to that figure. Um, That scares me to see that happen and in London again becoming a prominent area where there is multi-ethnicity rampant throughout London. Uh, 400 mosques in in England uh, at least the last figures. By the year 2020 uh, Carl Ellis indicated that uh, every major city will be dominated by islam uh does that scare us it's the same folks that uh bomb the uh, trade center in new york what does it say to us about some of these issues and how do we respond uh, from scripture uh, how do we respond missiologically to some of these issues um my daughter debbie who does work in the city all of my children live in the city uh, primarily in an african-american community which is again a real interaction between hispanics and The African-American community but uh, she works and goes as a public defender to the to the courts and begins to as she gets there someone was there earlier than she was and it certainly was not the minister from the evangelical church down the block it's again the ministers that belong to uh, uh, the Muslim faith and so they're there they're there regularly at youth detention centers where we don't do very much as far as Christians they're there as well and um, so here you have at least permeating the systems in one way or the other. And I know that we can say, well, it hasn't yet gotten into my kitchen. So therefore, there's a, there's a kind of a tolerance or a means of waiting upon this for a bit longer. Uh, I would say, no, I think it's urgent enough for us to begin praying and, and seeking out, what do we do with this, this information? The analysis for me in looking at least kingdomly, looking at it through kingdom eyes, it would be that the sovereign Lord has laid up be uh, upon us a number of issues that we've got to wrestle with. It's not going to be a very popular issue. You're not going to be asked to come back again and speak. Uh, It's not going to be something that you're going to fill rooms with in evangelical circles, especially when you realize that only 8.6 percent of evangelicals are in the city. So it tells you that, again, we're walking behind the, the issues that I think are coming right into our doorsteps, and so how do we deal with this? Um, The unmissionary people, Viv Gregg says, are coming to our cities as well, and they're the poor. uh, The refugees, the immigrant poor that are coming in, Uh, how will we deal with that? That goes along with both, you see. Not only the religious infiltration, but also the matters of of the immigrant groups and the poverty that exists in our major cities. Um, One of the things that I, Hinduism is so popular at Temple University, we work there, we try to uh, do some ministry at Temple University. I have a group tonight at 5:30, of about 15 to 18 young people from Temple that have come to know Christ. But I'll tell you, if the gospel is not there, Hinduism is. There's a real opportunity for them without a lot of restrictions to come in, without a lot of baggage, and be yourself and be there worshiping in an apartment someplace, on campus or off campus. Uh, how do we deal with this uh, this pluralism that's coming in, and who's going to greet these folks that are coming from different countries? with the gospel. Who shall be, who will greet them first? Mayor Lindsay, an old mayor friend from a distance of course, uh, of mine from New York said, Americans do not like their cities and I think that goes for us too. We just don't like them. Uh, Harvey Kahn and I were just talking that if you really want to scare people away you could either hold a prayer meeting or talk about the city. (laughs) And uh, we won't have anybody around and so that becomes problematic and um, but here again, I'd like to uh, leave with the limited time that we have and cut some corners on strategy, but I would love to be able to wrestle with it a bit more with you. Let me just give you again the analysis for a while and uh, see if you could, uh, you could follow with me on some of this. Um, when we look more recently, I... Um, <clears throat> Again, I'm beginning to realize that uh, the new Ellis Island, uh, by the way, are the campuses of our country. Uh, I find that to be the new Ellis Island. Um, When we get new arrivals, we are again looking at some figures that are a little bit more recent. But here again, uh, the Asian population, Hispanic population and the European community, uh, this is uh, the new arrivals. uh, and also those that come from Puerto Rico. Um, <clears throat> they're mostly found in our cities. And so we're going to find uh, uh, at these particular states, but they're really found in many of our urban cities, Los Angeles being the top uh, immigration capital of uh, the United States, uh, uh, and secondly, New York. Uh, but here again, we have uh, where many of, the, of the, uh, the immigrant groups are coming, and uh, you'll see at least the two groups. Asian and Hispanic groups, California again being one of the largest. Um, and, uh, and I look at this as matters of strategy and growth. Uh, how do we do ministry in this pluralistic community uh, and begin to share the gospel? So here again I'm, my deep concern is that many of our folks are, are probably excluding some of these urban uh, situations and yet that's where the populations are going. They're primarily urban um and then moving from there um let's look at uh, very because uh, i think it's important i, I look at the, the social sciences as uh, a matter of reading but uh looking at them saying lord what are the things that we are to grapple with i think again that we need to we need to look at the the income here the the financial status and uh this somewhat tells you where they're going to be moving to that's why i feel that uh New York City, uh, uh, the Asian community has gone from the inner city of New York to the flushing community, and I think it will continue to move out further as high density and other things, social ills begin to be more prominent. Uh, how do we prepare for some of that? Well, here again is just a little bit of what it tells us and where people probably, if, if we did further analysis, this will be in the book, deal a little bit more about what, uh, what vocations, what, what kinds of occupations are they involved with. Um, the, um, by the year 2000, 50% of all the uh, college-age young people will be people of color in the United States. So, 50%. In California, 50% of the population will be uh, people of color. Um, <clears throat> uh, what does that say to us as we, as we look at some of these, uh, these concrete figures? Uh, here again, um, Uh, Looking at place of birth, if I was to do this in some of our classrooms, uh, probably, uh, and I did it once uh, where I asked how many were born in in this country, I think uh, one, two were were born here, and the rest of the students out of 18 students were not. Uh, So the shift is much more than just outside. It's in here. Uh, For some reason we're blinded to a variety of this. I I don't know why, maybe we need to be uh, cooking our meals here so that at least maybe through the census we would recognize that it's it's also coming to Westminster. It's here. It's a new place. It's a different place. But if that's true about the population that uh, 50% of the young people, college age people are going to be people of color, I've got to begin thinking anticipatorily and begin to say, how am I going to do ministry uh, 10 years down the road? And where do I begin planning for that? So we think anticipatorily. Get away from felt needs if you can. Felt needs are only dealing with past to present. And and that's great. You've got to do some of that. But I think we stay with felt needs, past to present. We've got to deal from present to future. And I think some of this information helps you to look at the trends and say, how are we going to deal with ministry anticipatorily? Uh, We don't think along those lines very often. I think society does a little bit more than we do on this matter. But here again, you're looking at where, and this is the Canadian 2% population uh, that I was telling you about Um, uh, from North America. But here we have the Caribbean, Latin America, uh, highly represented. Uh, I want you to look that the immigration really since the 1960s has shifted so much that basically uh, the the uh, the people that are coming here are much much younger than we had uh, prior to the '60s. Uh, so it's taken a different here. Look at the most recent from the Asian population, um, <clears throat> male, female, and to look that you really have your high population is going to be. And if you under this age, of course, you would add the the uh, the the numbers. But here, basically, you have. Uh, a high population of young people uh, to be reached. Uh, Where are they? Uh, And uh, where are they located as far as geography? Um, uh, This is going to be uh, important trends for us to understand what kind of a ministry we're going to have. Talking about the second generation, how prominent that is going to be uh, for the church uh, in the future, in the present and in the future. Uh, Look at the Hispanic population. and uh, we'll stop with these kinds of uh, attention holders. Uh, the Hispanic, again, the same, uh, the same aspect, pretty much even, male-female close to it, but a very young population uh, that's eager, that's looking for um, uh, meaningful relationships, uh, an opportunity for us to do missions. I, I would say that my group is divided uh, Hispanic, uh, African, uh, African-American students from Temple. And uh, the, the big questions are the issues of refuge. Uh, where can we feel secure? We feel uh, we're very vulnerable in society. So my wife cooks every Wednesday a meal for 18 people every week. Uh, Spanish food or something that would be creative rather than just uh, sloppy joes. That's uh But I think for me, that is going to be the most important for people that feel so vulnerable. To stay there from 5.30 to 10 o'clock at night Uh, I just leave them and just leave them the key and say lock when you're finished. But basically the needs are so enormous for them to feel the security and to develop discipleship and work towards long range involvement with people that have just come to Christ and staying with them for the next 15 years uh, to train them. But here again, you have a very young population that's coming into this country. And again, the shift in 1965, the new immigration policy really began to show forth uh, 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 a new population for us to minister. Um, <clears throat> the, um, the concerns I have today is primarily dealing with uh, what do we do with all of this? Um, what is the church going to do with some of this material? Um, well, let me give you at least a few thoughts that I think are happening. My investigation isn't so general that I can speak for every city or state, um, so it's very limited in some ways. But um, maybe we need to challenge each other. Um, there is a posture of ignorance uh, and this may sound um, ridiculous but there is a posture of ignorance um, that the church has taken and um, it's uh, an education we might say it's unconscious ineffectiveness. Uh, This has to deal with not knowing the status so it's uh, unconscious ineffectiveness uh, uh, we're here then to try to get in as best possible uh, and say, knock at the door and say, "This is what's happening in this country." Uh, other religions are aware of it; that they're supporting it financially. Millions are coming in to propagate uh, uh, their gospel of Islam, and uh, and people are worshiping Allah all over the place, as you know. Uh, what are we doing? So we come in to raise consciousness and to try to say, "Listen, these are the trends. How does the gospel respond to these issues?" without any compromise, Uh, but there are churches, there are people, Christians, that still stay within this locked door of uh, ineffectiveness, unconscious ineffectiveness, the posture of ignorance, and I find that many of our institutions that are training ministers are right there with that. For some reason, either because of mission or the curriculum itself, it doesn't lend to sensitizing us further. So Harvey Harvey Khan and I try as best possible to do that in any class we can uh, because we're serious about our calling and our commitments are uh, alongside of that, uh, that we've got to be sharing more. I think it's the times for us to to lay down a number of things and to begin thinking about uh, uh, this global procedure. Uh, The next possibility is the posture of resistance for the church. The posture of resistance. this is what educators call conscious ineffectiveness. Here we are aware of opportunities, um, but have in some ways intentionally, consciously decided to ignore uh, some of the demographics that are existing in our society. May I say one of the deep issues that I probably run into much more than anything else is going to be the needs of the poor. And there isn't... uh, in Philadelphia, it's a disaster because of what sociologists call the donut effect, which is the center of the donut is, uh, is zero, and that's where North Philadelphia is. And that's where that, there's no resources there. They're gone, but also not only are there no resources, the church is gone. So we have a new ecclesiology, and the ecclesiology is that our church building is there. And so there's a real need, and this is happening in many of our Hispanic and African-American churches, Anglo churches that have, So you talk about the white flight, and the brown flight, and the black flight as well. We continue to go back to those facilities because we've been there a long time. But in some ways, we we no longer live there. And so there's a sense where we have vacated those communities, and so part of it is that, uh, uh, the people understand that, by the way, because they know know about absentee landlords. I never met a landlord of mine in 30 years, living on 112th Street, then living on 21st, before they were all gentrified. And they replaced us um, that I never met one and they could tell us we had to do whatever was on the agenda I couldn't possibly move into my old tenement house that had no bathroom um, on 21st Street and I'm not that old I mean you know there were there were bathrooms in those days but there wasn't in our apartment it was out in the hallway Uh, but now I couldn't afford it I could never afford that same place uh, today Um, and uh, I am deeply concerned about that. We have a mandate from God on the matters of, of the, uh, the issues of injustice and the concerns of the poor. And uh, I think we've got to wrestle with that very, very seriously. It may cost us a little bit more than even going cross-cultural. Um, the posture of resistance. Uh, let me just give you a few things on that. We have a church, one of the reasons for this, by the way, is we have a church-centered theology. Meaning, and I, um, basically you've you've truncated the gospel. Uh, The church is the end. You plant the church. You want to grow the church. Everything is for the church. And in some ways, we've lost sight of a kingdom perspective. Christ is king and the kingdom of God. And so that we've truncated the possibilities of doing holistic ministries and far-reaching ministries. I think this is one of the exciting things that I at least hear from Redeemer. It it has a kingdom perspective. And it's uh, the end is not the church. Uh, You don't plant the church for the church's sake. It's a kingdom perspective. And so wherever the church has done that, we find that it's a church-centered theology, and it just stays there. And that means when anything happens, it doesn't matter. You just keep on moving out, and you lose sight of the kingdom perspective. The second is the ethnocentrism and racism attached to it. That's another reason why we are in a posture of resistance is that we see ourselves as a center of society. And so in some ways, um, what's taken place is that there is a... A matter where um, we have become um, superior, if you will. We have become uh, uh, more significant then. And that's in all of us. To some degree, there's a sense of nationalism or uh, a particular identity, which, which uh, we've n- we never thought as Christians that that, that might coexist uh, as a spirit exists in my life. But I discovered that racism was doing very well when I was not a Christian, in New York City, in Manhattan. I knew that. Germantown was on 86th Street. We couldn't cross past 100 100th Street, really. 96, you were really going to be, have to run for your life. We understood we couldn't cross certain avenues. We understood what racism was about. Um, uh, becoming a Christian, then, I discovered that it's, it had permeated and, and seeped into the local churches, into the ministry of even very solid evangelical communities uh, that racism existed and no one wants to speak about it. The best thing we could speak about is probably make sure that uh, you don't drink and you don't play cards and those are the kinds of, and I was always wondering when are we going to add the other statements. But that's a little bit more difficult and probably a little more biblical as well. So here again I discovered that the probably the um, the areas of ethnocentrism leave a posture of resistance where we feel that there isn't very much of a need to go further. Uh, we've kind of dominated. Uh, denominations have also a flag they raise up and, and uh, they're, they're also ethnic in some ways. If you notice the Christian Reformed Church, right? What is the makeup of the... It's going to be Dutch, of course, and so uh, my name is Otizma. Uh, <laughs> but, but the same is true, again, if you come into the traditions here and you've got, again, and so that it might be Mcortiz uh, because it has a tradition, it, it favors, it uh, feels strong. And it's not that we're saying you should do away with that because I think that's not, uh, that's not appropriate. God created us who we are. So there's a Christian uh, view of the creation that helps us to celebrate. Uh, but I think ethnocentrism, and I know it is, it's sin. And uh, there isn't uh, this matter of superiority. And so uh, we are in a posture of resistance because... We see ourselves as the center of. Uh, the third is a fear of change, of um, diversity. There's a fear of that. So a church should stay in the posture of resistance. And I think this is what happened in the early 60s with the, and earlier than that even when the church began to depart from the urban context. And so your free church, your Lutheran church, all those were ethnic communities. And they were very homogeneous, you know. Peter Wagner would say that homogeneous churches grow rapidly, but they also die rapidly because they were German Lutheran churches in right in Chicago. I could buy any building for 50,000 because they were all ethnic churches that had vacated. There was only a few people attending there. That's exactly what we did in Chicago. We used all their buildings for our schools. It was, uh, they were vacant and they were all ethnic churches. Uh, the free church, uh, Scandinavian, the Lutheran church, you see you have them. And so the homogeneous church grows rapidly and dies rapidly when shifts begin to take place like that. And so uh, we take that other side of the coin at least to look at it. Fear of differences and of change. And then fourthly, we feel the sense of overwhelmed uh, con- interest that the task is beyond our sphere of influence and our, beyond our sphere of resources. And so we give, uh, we give up on it. What can we do here? And so there is a posture of resistance. Let's continue to do what we're doing well. And, and, um, and you try in some ways with understanding the, 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 the task, you, uh, you resist doing anything because you feel overwhelmed with it and you look at your resources. Uh, let's take the posture of mission uh, in this manner. Uh, the churches that are moving out, I think, should be at least have a biblical historical view of what's going on in this world. It's very interesting. You know, the ideal, there's such a disparity between the ideal and the real in some ways that uh, I struggle with this in trying to discover what is really your confession. No matter what we say and no matter what we write, in some ways when it gets to be fleshed out, which is good theology, it's functional theology, when it's fleshed out, we discover really. So if I was to do an ethnographic study on a church, And no one told me what their beliefs were. And I just did a taxonomy and kind of discovered what do they really hold to. I wonder what doctrinal statement I would write up. It doesn't matter what their banner may say. It matters, again, what are they really trying to struggle with and live out? What are their theological, ideological commitments? You have them, but what are they? And so uh, it would be interesting. I think, again, if we hold to the providence of God, how in the world can we ignore what God is doing? Uh, how can we ignore urbanization uh, unless we think that God is sovereign only in certain conditions and certain places and we've limited of course and it's a contradiction of terms and sovereignty or even providential the whole theology of providence how do we see that God is moving people into uh, to our doorsteps that are different than than all than than i am um, I always say that I could in one hour probably visit three or four different countries immediately within one hour just to buy my groceries. I buy them from Palestinian people that run a Hispanic grocery store in our neighborhood called Cousins. They speak Spanish fluently. They know how to contextualize. Economic reasons makes you contextualize, doesn't it? Very well. So you go there and I can go right down to the hardware store and uh, the fellow there uh, is uh, from Korea and they talk to me about uh, their last trip to Korea. Um, and you, you keep on the, the, uh, the cobbler shop uh, down the block who does, my, does the shoes and uh, they're from Southeast Asia. Uh, you go around and you come back home and you've just had a wonderful opportunity of reaching and talking. But it's in the city that you find this kind of intensity of, of people that are living together, struggling together with a variety of issues. And the opportunity because they become so nominal in their own religion for a period of time uh, that we have an opportunity of sitting down over either some kind of liquid, um, tea or coffee. I'm trying to keep it straight here for a while. And uh, talk about what, are the, what is Christ, uh, the Messiah? What is the Messiah of God about? Uh, so the, the whole matter of God's providence. If you have a high Christology, if you have uh, a Christology of, that's a high Christology, uh, Christ the author of the word of God, Christ redeemer, uh, Christ is Lord of all and all of life is to be under the Lordship of Christ if you have a high Christology it always leads you into evangelism uh, however you may define evangelism which is another time for us uh, that we we have again uh, lacked to speak to people about the good news of Christ and to society uh, good news uh, my community needs to hear good news not only to the people but my community needs to hear good news as well and that leads us into community development, uh, sharing the resources that God has given to us. So you see, here again, is uh, the posture of the mission should be, uh, historically, pluralism is not new to the New Testament. As a matter of fact, pluralism, the church grew in pluralism. Uh, Alistair McGrath, uh, just to quote him very, very quickly, it is being increasingly recognized that the future of Christianity depends on evangelism. Traditionally, Western understanding of the nature of the church have been grounded on the assumption that the church is situated within a largely settled Christian context, as in England or PA, Pennsylvania, and is thus primarily concerned with pastoral care and teaching. But that period is over, and we know that that's over since the Second World War. A long time ago, we have a mission context. One of the major developments in Western culture within the last 30 years has been massive immigration into Western cities, especially from Asia. Whether one looks at London, Sydney, or Los Angeles, there is a growing presence of non-Christian religions in regions that are regarded as nominally Christian. And Michael Green speaks to this. He says, the rise of pluralism poses no fundamental objection to the theory or practice of evangelism. Indeed, if anything, it brings us closer to the world of the New Testament itself. I find it ironic that people object to the proclamation of the Christian gospel these days because so many other faiths jostle uh, on the doorsteps of our global village. What's new? The variety of faith and antiquity was even greater than it is today, and the early Christian, making as they did ultimate claims for Jesus, met the problem of other faiths head-on from the very outset. Their approach was interesting. They did not sit down and dialogue with other faiths, very much as far as we know. They did not denounce other faiths. They simply proclaimed Jesus with all the power and persuasiveness persuasiveness at their disposal. Uh, There is some truth to that. We've been discussing, again, cultural wars and a variety of other things. And I'm wondering if you've ever met one before to talk to them about Jesus Christ and the claims of Christ. Well, out of a lot of the analysis, I was intrigued just with the, what are we going to do? What is the church doing in multi-ethnic communities? And so I went to Los Angeles and spent some time with the Nazarene Church, a variety of other independent churches, charismatic churches, and um, came up with two models. And I'm sure there are other names, so please feel free to change these names and and make some other suggestions. But one of them dealt with uh, the multi-congregational church and the multi-ethnic church or the multicultural church. So we have, if I could, the multi-congregational church and the multicultural church or ethnic church. I'll put the ethnic word there better. Those are the two models. But under that, there are subheadings of the multi-congregational church and the multi-ethnic church. And I'd like to try to describe them as best that I can so that we might get a feel for this. Um, It was very interesting that uh, the the multi-congregational church was uh, one that was used all over the place. If you went to Flushing, New York, you would see the church growing there in some ways or another. Um, if you went into Manhattan, 57th Street, Calvary is there, and you would try to do your investigation, and you discover uh, a different kind of multi-ethnic. Is it really multi-ethnic? And so I had all these questions, very little, very little to answer as far as the integrity of this. Is it assimilation? Is it separate, separate but equal? People get together, and they're separate, but they're equal. Is it uh, integration? Is it uh, reconciliation? the new humanity in Christ. So a lot of questions, but here is your multi-congregational church. If we looked at something like this, <clears throat> the multi-congregational church, which uses usually one facility, and you know what this, this, is, uh, this looks like. Every one of the cities that I went to, I, uh, I discovered that there were some real exciting things happening, uh, in particular in Los Angeles. But at the same time, uh, there were some things that we could learn from to really help us as we plant, as we work through this multi-congregational dimension. And that's the kind of stuff that I was trying to list in the book and that uh, uh, hopefully will be out by, by the latest August. Um, uh, this is uh, a little bit of the, the multi-congregational church. Let me uh, at least, and I'll bring this back again, um, let me just put down what Peter Wagner says is a multi-congregational church. You can take this down now or later and... Uh, um, this was given by Peter Wagner, churches that minister to several different ethnic groups, if properly managed, they are effective in urban areas, which is true, uh, where many different minority groups live in geographic proximity to each other. Some multi-congregational churches simply share facilities with ethnic congregations that maintain their own autonomy, while others do go so far as to share their in, the entire church administration equitably. So you, in some ways, you, if you were to exegete this, you would find he's talking about a variety of different approaches. And that's what I discovered, that there were a variety of different uh, of possibilities to the multi-congregational church. Uh, the Nazarene are planting churches like this deliberately. Intention- are there any Nazarene folks here? Well, they're planting these kinds of churches in Los Angeles because they've read the writing on the wall. And they're doing it intentionally, but they're using a a model that uh, I'll try to share a little bit with you about. Uh, There are three areas to the multi-congregational. One of them is a renting model. Uh, You can change that name as well. What it means is basically that another group in your community is beginning to meet. Uh, They're very young. They just began. They could be Southeast Asian, but they'd like to use a facility that you're using. You may be renting it, by the way. It may be that they want to come in on those hours, or before you, or simultaneously. But you use a renting approach, and that's been going on for for many, many years. You know there's a lot of problems with it, especially if you're the, uh, not the dominant group. Uh, And every case that I ran into, I discovered that very few knew how to operate in a correct way. This a possibility of something that could be very exciting. Um, The renting can begin something that could be the future of the church, but where the church that is renting this uh, facility is on a deficit. They've lost their congregation. They're wondering how to pick up and get going or how to feel better about themselves. And so all of a sudden, they have this group of Hispanics that are coming in that becomes larger than they are. And there's an excitement on Sunday morning. There's a variety of things that are happening. So you invite them for Easter service, for Good Friday passively uh, a baptism service. And, uh, and they come, and there's an excitement. What it does is very often, it nearly empowers the other group, uh, the Anglo group that's uh, declining. Uh, the problem is that very often the Anglo group may, uh, again, when all else fails, you begin to do a little lying. And you say, we, well, our church is growing. You know, we have this other group. Uh, but there really hasn't been any settled facts that you've uh, sh- uh, shook hands on this process. Uh, but you are so excited that you're nearly assuming uh, that the feelings uh, lead you to saying that we have growth going on in our church. And uh, that happens. I think it happens uh, naturally, of course, because that's our nature. Um, <clears throat> so here again, the renting model has some real possibilities. We can take advantage for the kingdom of God, in using that word correctly, I hope. Uh, but to really be, um, reach out to groups that are uh, very vulnerable, uh, willing to uh, have somebody love them and be vulnerable with them. I found this to be true in, in, in two particular churches. It was exciting. On a Sunday morning in a Nazarene church, I discovered that they were giving the building mutual responsibility to everyone. They signed the papers over that now uh, all of these groups that are listed here own this one building in Los Angeles. Uh, they moved 10 years. They got to the place where everything, the responsibilities, of course, were now, and they decided as a group of people who would get what time in the service, all of the rest. It was no longer that one group dominated. It was a very solid biblical group of Christians that wanted to serve the Lord together. It took a bit of time to work through these issues, but it was intentional. Uh, they were intentional about a reconciliation. Uh, they didn't want just people to, you know, what I call a, um, kind of the multicolor aspect. It was much more biblically uh, sound in, in matters of reconciliation. And so they were working towards that, and that meant, again, uh, the ability of, in some ways, um, voluntarily displacing your resources. It's kind of the incarnation. It's kind of the kenosis aspect of Philippians 2, of emptying yourself. Uh, When I saw that, I didn't expect this to happen. I just came to that service, and here they were signing between the Filipinos and the whole group that the church was now, and it took them 10 years as I investigated this church. A wonderful wonderful, uh, uh, demonstration of God's uh, compassion and love. Um, There's another model, the renting model, then the celebration model. And um, the celebration model is a very loose relationship. And you know, many of us do that. Maybe that's the bridging that you might find yourself doing where you, you go to visit a church and, um, and they visit you. And uh, the pulpits might even be exchanged, if possible. You do some of that. Uh, you're a little leery, and you come back, and there's dangers in it, you know, because you always question, how in the world could they love to sing those choruses over and over and over again? Uh, I mean, don't they get tired of it? Can't they wait to really listen to our wonderful Lutheran hymns uh, when they get back? I mean, you see, so we get into this kind of ethnocentrism and this clash. And, but if you don't work further, the celebration model just drops. It just becomes separate but equal. Jim Crow law, you know, doesn't really do very much for the kingdom. It gives you some sensitivity, but it needs to go a little bit further. The celebration model can begin, it can be a beginning to a a process if we're thinking anticipatorily and planning and strategizing. It can be very, very valuable. So I, I find that we let it loose and we say, please, this is good for once a year, but please don't let it happen anymore. Uh, but you, do, you don't see that God is doing some magnificent things with each other. Again, the providence of the Lord, and, and maybe there are other things that we can do. Uh, let's look again. One of the things you must always ask in the celebration model is, very, what do we offer each other? Uh, each group must have an understanding of what they bring to the table. It's like the 1 Corinthians 12 passage, I have need of you, uh, you have need of me. Uh, without that, we have a deficit relationship. We have a disciple maker and disciple lead. That leads to the same problem again, you know, a kind of superior inferior approach. So you want to get to the place where you begin dealing with this matter of reciprocity. And then uh, thirdly is, if we can, for a better word, use the integrative model. And that, uh, that leads towards a greater partnership, a long-term relationship concerning matters of uh, reconciliation. Um, one of the interesting things about the integrative, at least in my investigation, this will happen, is that probably the language, the language groups that are listed there, very often as I as I've met with them, um, uh, the Anglo church was much more wherever this Bible of ours is being fleshed out. And the pastor, who is always a key, by the way, I like to say it kind of falls into a pluralism of leadership and all of this. I think they support it and they empower this vision. But in every case, I found that it depended so much on that senior pastor to, uh, to give it uh, the kind of... Uh, push, the kind of vision that it needed, and then after that, everyone kind of surrounded that process. And the pastor can never divorce himself from that process. In Flushing, New York, the same thing happened. The pastor was so key to, to what was going to take place. Uh, without that pastor, if you try to, to again, uh, uh, to short-circuit the process, uh, you'll do it by going to someone else, I think. I think it's a need for this ongoing peace. When I met with all of the pastors together, I discovered that in some ways, that the uh, the Anglo pastor was uh, there for the duration of time. What I discovered about the language groups, that some of them had not yet settled on their theological commitments about justice and uh, reconciliation. It was still, they were still in process. They wanted to have their language church. They were glad to have the facility. Uh, There was a lot of good things, but uh, it had to go further. And, uh, and so that if we were to ask them a question like this, what would you do if, um, if in your community there was uh, a number of uh, Asian families? Would you reach out to them? He says, no, I would probably call the Asian pastor to come and do that and bring them into that group. Somewhere they wanted to keep their homogeneous setting, and I don't want to destroy the possibilities of that, but I also feel underlying that there's another meaning going on, and one of the meanings could be very well that we're not as committed to this as you are. Now, the Anglo church grew numerically. It grew numerically because the second generation from all those groups were coming into the English-speaking service. And so, and it was exciting. So that's church growth kind of through the side or back door, if you will. Uh, But in some ways, it comes in. And they began going to the, and they loved it there. And so the parents were going into the language group. And so you had it all housed in one place, in one situation. I always feel this, that there is always two pieces to this process. One of them is the quantitative. We need people there and you've got to say, how many people do you need to have a multi-ethnic church? Five of different, fifth, what is the number? Some ways you've got to determine that. What is a multi-ethnic uh, quantitative aspect? The other one is a qualitative aspect. You need to have a structural change. If I was to look at Calvary Church in my evaluation on 57th Street, if I was to look at a church that has all a tremendous breadth of different people, African-Americans primarily but also great numbers of Haitian people in that church basically they haven't gone into uh, they're basically an assimilationist they still haven't dealt with race reconciliation they haven't gone to contextualize the church the structure is the same as it was a hundred years ago I don't know how old the church is I forget but the point of it is that it needs structural change something needs to happen to the structure like uh, who makes decisions who are the elders of the church you don't do it by the method of ethnicity, you do it through the scriptures again. You go back to 1 Timothy, but now they're Haitian elders as well. Uh, the, uh, the music and the selection uh, that is important for the church is decided now by a group of people that are committed to the gospel and uh, qualify, if I may use that, uh, through scripture. Um, but that hasn't been done. So as long as they can come here and, and enjoy our preaching and our, all the rest of it, uh, they're welcome to come forever. A wonderful group, and, and, and as I meet with them, they're very uh, humbled. They, they, they're glad to be there. They love the Word of God. So you have all these ethnic groups coming in, but they know in their hearts that they don't own the, the store. Uh, they don't make decisions in some cases, and uh, so it was difficult for some to say, you know, I would love to be part of this process a little bit more than we are right now. So you have, again, this other kind of side to it that... Uh, that is there. But I think it's workable. I just think the Bible speaks loud enough for a willing heart to hear. And then if we can come back to some of those uh, issues, and if our intention is not assimilation, if our intention is not a Jim Crow approach, if our, if our intention is not segregationist, you know, come, come and celebrate with us once a year, but we have a commitment to a new humanity in Jesus Christ, then we're going to work very hard at this. And it's going to be very painful, but I think uh, that's what the Lord would have us to do in a multi-ethnic context. Um, so here again, uh, you have the integrative approach, and this has uh, a lot of uh, benefits, and, and, and again, it's not the easiest. By the way, I found that the charismatic church uh, did not do this model, multi-congregational, as much as the multi-ethnic, where they all meet in one place, all together at the same time that uh, that's something that someone else is gonna pick up uh, on I hope and write something on and why is it happening so powerfully in the charismatic movement if somebody has an answer here Roger uh, let me know but let me get to the second model the multi-ethnic church model and um, uh, we'll try to talk about strategy with any time permitting but here again is the uh, multi-ethnic model and this is a One that's given uh, by Hebert at Trinity, uh, but he defines it, again, I'll leave these out for you to copy, a multi-ethnic church is a church in which there is, number one, an attitude and practice of accepting people of all ethnic class and national origins as equal and fully participating members and ministers in the fellowship of the church. Secondly, the manifestation of this attitude and practice by the involvement of people from different ethnic social and national communities as members in the local church. So Hebert really uh, makes sure that in some ways there is a full participation uh, to have a multi-ethnic church. In some ways, he's talking here about the quantitative and the qualitative aspect. And I think both need to be there. I think both the quantitative, the numerical makeup of the church, uh, and the qualitative, the structural makeup of the church, without, again, you know, if you look at your your pastor at Redeemer, he uses this approach, as you've probably seen him do many times, I'm not sure. Have you seen Tim Kelly use this? Anyway, he always talks about basically you change your ministry on the basis of your context. This is always intention, but your universal uh, principle here, the ecclesiology, stays the same. This is the doctrine of the church, but here this is being changed because of the context. So they're all interacting with one another. And, of course, that's what you're doing. You're really looking at your ministry from that perspective and trying uh, without any compromise to minister to a people uh, that, that is there. So um, this is an interesting, uh, I think it's very valuable and workable. Uh, let me try to, uh, to go into the, the multi-ethnic church is like this. It's uh, this kind of the same kind of group, but uh, you have, again, uh, everyone meeting in one place and they all gathered together. Now, can you imagine this happening? English is the primary language. At least in every one of the churches that I attended, English was the primary language. They might translate some of it into other language, but it would be another one language. Now, there were churches that were doing more translation like, than that. They had earphones and things like that. But in most cases, it was really uh, all of the groups getting together, understanding that we're here and English is the primary language. And uh, Dr. Oh in, in Los Angeles had a church somewhat similar to this. And so there was a lot of people. He's Korean, graduate of Fuller, uh, and, uh, and working to reach everyone that's in his community. Right across the street, there's a housing project. And so he's reaching the people from, from that community. And so he has all of them gathered together. And uh, <clears throat> that's a pretty hard call, isn't it? I mean, it feels complicated. Some people indicate that the books that have been written have been black-white primarily uh, books. Um, and they say, don't give me any more. This is enough. How do you deal with this, this other piece here? And uh, it is happening, by the way. It's happening wonderfully in some churches. Some churches are really struggling, and I'll try to explain why they struggle. But here, here's a case where I think, again, we're meeting some of these needs. Remember, they're, they're usually found in an urban context. I would say if you take um, the Hispanic population is between 87% to 90% that are either in cities or metropolitan area. Uh, the African American community and other com- uh, immigrant groups also are found in the cities. Uh, uh, but in this case here, the multi-ethnic church is one for us to, to wrestle with. Um, one of the, if I could use, when I discovered what, what do you base this on? What, what makes you move towards this? Well, They gave me a list of reasons. Most of them, in every case, gave me a biblical uh, list. Some of them, as I taped them, because they were hours of taping, uh, some of them indicated basically, um, the the charismatic church in particular, primarily gave me that this is what God wanted. This is how God led us. This uh, This is how the Lord presented us. It was that kind of... uh, So it wasn't necessarily passages of scripture or they developed the theology of it. It was primarily that they felt this is what the Lord wanted. Uh, Even There wasn't even a justice issue. For them, it was a matter that they ministered to the community that was there. So they were incarnational. If I was to say, what what do they work from? They work very strongly from the power of the gospel and the incarnational dimension. That you've got to minister to the people that are living there. You've got to live there as well. So... um, and that the power of the gospel is sufficient. Don't worry about a lot of other stuff. And, uh, but let me give you the list at least that uh, some of them gave. One of them was uh, pretty consistently across the board, the Great Commission. The ethnos of great, the Great Commission. But they were saying also that if you reach them, you serve with them. So you can't possibly just say you're going to reach them and then say, uh, listen, why don't you find your own church? Or, you know, or start your own church. Here again, segregation. Uh, what they feel is if you, if you reach and you're committed to the Great Commission, then you're going to not only reach them, you're going to disciple, you're going to serve with them, with other people. That was the first one that was pretty much common among many of the... Then the Galatians 3.28 passage was a, was a second one that, had, uh, uh, that came out uh, very strong. And again, here is... Uh, the matter that there should be no personal distinctions among us. If you look at the passage at uh, uh, the matters of Jew and Greek, female and male, that in some ways this should give us that the body of Christ is, uh, is made up of diverse people. And so that in some ways it, we shouldn't uh, hinder the process. We shouldn't try to walk away from it. A posture of resistance. He, they all felt that uh, there was enough here for us to... Uh, Uh, That the language should not cause us to be, uh, to say, well, I can't reach that group because of language. Interesting that a lot of folks began to say, you know, that in some ways that the language, um, uh, the church is called to acquire a new language. That it's uh, it's more now than just having one language. Some say two is better than one, so you should learn probably another language. You're learning Korean, uh, you're learning, yeah, you better learn Korean language, I would say. But uh, you, you learned the computer language very fast. It was very functional, very necessary. And so you learn the computer language, and you need to do that. I mean, you're gonna have to teach that to everyone. Uh, but uh, the other part of it, you need to learn another mission language uh, for ministry. Who are the people here in the United States? It's not a matter of going uh, outside. Uh, so Galatians 3.29 also was another, number three was uh, another one used a great deal. Uh, this was uh, for them uh, the great motivation for the multi-ethnic church that we are all Abraham's offspring biblically as well as uh, in reality we're all Abraham's offspring and then the third uh, the fourth rather passage that was used very often was of course the Ephesians passage Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 and 19 there's a new humanity in Christ it's what uh, some of them especially the Asian pastors they would call if you really want to talk about cross culture play on words kind of thing but it's got to be at the cross of Jesus Christ that we really begin to engage it's that important it's at the cross of Jesus Christ that we do cross-cultural ministry so here again the Ephesians um, the Ephesians and the Colossians passage 3, 9 to 11 was prominent uh, in, in our discussion. And then uh, 1 John 4, verse 7. Here again, especially in the African American community or the, I would, let me uh, rephrase that, probably it was more Haitian or Afro-Caribbean community. They felt very strong that if, they, if you're a Christian you will love your brother and sister. If you're not a Christian, you don't love us. So the sign of loving to being a Christian is to love your brother and sister, no matter what their background. And they were very strong on this whole matter of uh, soteriology, conversion. Uh, they, I mean, it was really strong. There's no argument for us. How can you hate us and say that you're a child of God? So there were a lot of questions. It was fiery time. I'm glad I was just taping and was taking notes. Uh, 1 John 4:7, And then uh, the First Corinthians pas- passage. 1 Corinthians 12, that God has a divine purpose for diversity. And I'll just read that very quickly. That basically, again, the only requirement to a membership, to enter, to come into the body, is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so they brought this out. And uh, uh, in chapter 12, the first uh, few verses there, Um, Verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks. Slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so here again, the whole idea of um, that basically that's the only requirement for membership to come in. And so here it breaks down, again, some of the segregation, some of the uh, isolation and, uh, and uh, separation that we've had in, in some of our ministries. Uh, but then again, the, the final thing is, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And uh, we have need of you. Um, and I think, again, that's a wonderful, you, but it's hard work. It's matters of really getting uh, to work at these issues. and uh, uh, what what were some of the hindrances and i you could tell i'm rushing a little bit here but i i want to leave a little time for us uh if i may um uh one of the things that came out was tradition tradition became the authority over against scripture and you know how that goes that goes in all of our churches that in some ways uh the uh the fear that uh, is that uh, tradition without truth is ever growing old uh, Tertullian's statement is true today in 1996 that tradition becomes authoritative to the point that it becomes, uh, that scripture becomes subordinate to it. And that's a fear that a lot of the pastors had. Um, uh, There's a statement, if I could read it, a Cambodian family said to me that they know Buddha is not a god. They have accepted the teachings of Jesus and his divinity. Therefore they were were most willing to send their children to Sunday school and church to learn more about Christ. But venerating and honoring Buddha is their tradition. It is a community and national tradition. They want to continue in that way and do not see anything wrong with it. The idea of syncretism of religious beliefs and practices of the multi-ethnics is one of the greatest uh, difficulties that they're facing. It requires enormous time on the part of the church to present biblical Christianity. So here again, they struggle. And I know that that's going to be there. Even in Hispanic culture, when you think that you've removed yourself from Roman Catholicism or Piritimo, the Spiritism, or all that, it's integrated into everything, and it, then it comes into, uh, into our evangelical communities. And you don't think so, but you'll find out that the Pentecostal church probably has a lot of those pieces lingering in there. So how do, you, how do you begin to say that this, we've got to deal with this biblically? The second part is patterns of thinking. They're not only traditions, but patterns of thinking. We think that one aspect of culture that is approved by one group then should be approved by everyone. And it could be offensive to another group. And so they were having, uh, for an example, um, we're affectionate. Uh, We hug everyone. I'm sure many of your churches hug and kiss. When I was in Israel uh, in the West Bank teaching there this last January, I discovered that uh, the Russian Jews that were coming in, the new recent converts, the men kissed you. Uh, And now you could tell the stubs and everything else why... But uh, it was, uh, um, it was a, a part of the culture. Uh, but some of the Jewish Christians that were there didn't like that part. So I was observing what was going on, and, uh, and the men could kiss you uh, on your lips. And, uh, you know, we're, we, that's what we would say. And, and the others were offended by it. It's, What's so wrong with this? Well, here, here you come, and all they're trying to say is, don't you see what a... Look at the multi-ethnic church and you say, how do we work this through biblically? How do we get how long does it take? Do we even try this? Um, And I think the context determines a lot of that and your theology determines a lot of that. Um, So we have a lot of time of correction, uh, mutual communication. You've got to have avenues of communication. The third is family clans. Uh, The family, the power of the family is so much more than the power of the, family of God in the church. So the family clan that comes together. You've got to wrestle with the, that strength that they have. Um, and I think you know, you could already picture what that would be like. They determine, uh, no matter what the church says, so you've got to deal with discipline questions and a number of things that relate to that. Um, they, they feel very much, how can you put discipline a person and bring shame to that family when the level of shame is so, de- so uh, oppressive to that family, that clan, how do you deal with biblical discipline? You see, so there was a lot of a lot of teaching, a lot of constant teaching, patience. The fruit of the spirit has to be evident there. Then, uh, uh, difficulty in discipleship is number four. I didn't know what words to put here, but it was difficulty in discipleship. Uh, basically, the quote says, "Son, don't be too religious. You can skip church service once in a while. Don't be so fanatic about the church. You're young. Taste the world." So here, discipleship, the concept of discipleship becomes somewhat problematic. And uh, um, how do you disciple someone with that kind? And then uh, the redemption and lift, which has happened a lot to the Chinese community, but others as well. The Hispanic community in New York City that is dying to get out of uh, Harlem and Spanish Harlem. And uh, I found that the, young, the younger second generation, third generation probably, um, have um, uh, redemptive lift Economically, they're better. They move out way past Yonkers or different places where it's much more. And they said, can't wait to get out of it. Then they come and they hear me at an university, and I'm calling them back to the city. And their anger comes up. We, we were, got places there, we were born there, and now we have a chance of getting out of there. And uh, the whole subject about why did we lose our best leaders in those communities? What happened to the church? Oh, uh, you know, so forth. Well, there's a strategy that comes out of this, but I'm, I wouldn't want to go into that uh, uh, without your any questions or uh, things that pertain to your own particular um, concerns and interests, urban ministry, whatever. Well, um, again, when all else fails, tokenism is where you lend up because it's such a hard process. But I would say one of the key pieces is going to be development of, indigenous leaders. And uh, that's going to be nearly a priority of uh, the pastor, I think. My opinion is that you nearly approach that um, as one of your most important responsibilities. Um, you don't ever tell, um, trying to find a, an illustration, I don't say to, uh, um, would you get me a Hispanic group and you train them and then you bring them in? The reality is that I'm probably going to have to be convinced that I am the best person to work with that Hispanic leader or that African-American leader, or Korean leader. I'm going, I have to be committed to that, that I need to spend more time with them. I can't just delegate responsibility. and say, bring me the, the peoples of the, of the area, bring me the people groups. I, I really have to begin understanding my role a little bit more, and that means working with those leaders. And you have to be convinced that you're going to be very important. You're going to have to make some adjustments in your cross-cultural understandings. But I think if I could say that in the cases that I discovered, that the pastor was going to be a key person, but he's going to also struggle probably more than anybody else with disappointments and everything else. It's a time demand, a shift nearly in his whole um, uh, responsibility, his whole timeline of ministry. Um, So I think uh, that's going to be... uh, Key, key to doing multi-ethnic ministries is going to be training leaders and training leaders that exist yet to go cross-cultural. I don't think there's an abandonment, I think there's an inclusion. You don't just say, well, you know, we get rid of all these leaders. Well I think the, the multi-congregational church is, uh, is probably a very workable model because it gives you a lot of avenues to do everything else. You can even do a multi-ethnic church and still use English. You see, so it gives you a lot of possibilities um, to have homogeneous and heterogeneous groups at the same time. Um, I, I think it's such a long process that that keeps everyone intact. By the way, I noticed one thing, too, that they usually shifted denominations. There was kind of a rubbing off so that they might have come independently, but they landed up being Nazarene or conservative Baptist. They all joined, and it was easier to operate then as well. So that they became also in kind of a structural change they all became part of one church one denominational structure uh, hopefully it was legitimate you know um, so I think the multi uh, multi congregational church I basically uh, work with a multi-ethnic myself and uh, but again it's second generation so you know, social and all the rest may be very homogeneous but it's different ethnic groups second generation his, his whole worldview and culture. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's why you do have to work with that unless you want to plant your own church outside of that. Hopefully you can get the blessing of your pastor to go and do a multi-ethnic church. Um, but I think it's very difficult for them to shift gears, especially first generation. They, again, were stuck. And uh, I, again, that could be leading to ethnosis. I, I know that our language is wonderful, but there's a, there's a, a commission that God has given to us to go further than ourselves and I um, so I challenge uh, folks you you don't have to lose your ethnicity as a matter of fact I discovered that when we celebrate together we gain a different perspective of who we are and it's great when there's doing you're doing theology because uh, you're able to also come in on it in a wonderful way so any other questions anything else that uh, might uh, well uh, let me leave you with uh, uh, one or two things Um, One of them is you have to be intentional about uh, urban, about multi-ethnic. You have to be uh, so deliberate about doing this that you're really planning ahead and you're trying to find models that are doing it and you're learning from them. I wish I could match up what I've learned with new pastors that are thinking of planting, but we don't think along the mentoring process. I would love to attach some of these pastors that have done it for 15 years and know the ins and outs and the problems, how to do something probably that will take less suffering, maybe less economics as well, to do this work. I think you have to be intentional. I think you have to be incarnational as well. I, again, come back to the hard point, the incarnational aspect. Now, how do you do that in a metropolis like uh, New York or how do you live when the rent must be enormous? I, I, I really believe that ministry, I think if you take uh, Bob Lupton's view of uh, of uh, claiming your community, I think that's going to be crucial, where you live and where you serve, that even geography and the moving of one place to another is not outside of God's providence. I, don't ma- I, I make a decision with mission, mission core attached to it, that in some ways I'm living in a place where I can meet my neighbors and I can function. So. So if we do it that way, I think we've got to think incarnational. I think it changes us. We may not be as effective as we would like, but I think it begins to change us and uh, our dependency on God and and learning how to do theology even in that kind of autonomy of a local community and functioning and living with your family. So I think the incarnational, intentionality and incarnational are two very, very important pieces.